Jesus is speaking. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Bradley and Tim, thank you guys so much uh, for leading us in music and song. It is a huge blessing to have you guys. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as we witness these young women take vows before this congregation, pledging themselves to faithfulness to those vows, we are undone because each of us in this room knows our own hearts and the ways in which we waver. Jesus, if it were not for you, the good shepherd who comes seeking the lost, all of us would be in 99 different directions. But you have sought us and found us. Father, we pray that these young girls would know your pursuit of them all the days of their lives. Father, we praise you that what has been said of you over and over and over in this service is that you are steadfast. Father, in fact, you have said that you are filled with steadfast love, with covenant love, and with mercy. Father, I pray that to a woman and to a man in this room today, you would make yourself known that way. And as the psalmist says, that because you are steadfast, we know that we will be protected. Your steadfast love actually guards us, and we praise you. Father, we confess to you that when we experience the upheaval of our lives, as we watch the upheaval in our country, we grieve and we wonder, what are you doing? Father, we praise you that even in the offertory, we were reminded that grace will prevail. 
Father, we praise You that that is not something that has dawned on a human mind to say that we might be encouraged by the simple words of our mouths, but You are the one who said You are going to wipe away every tear that there will be no more pain and suffering, death and dying. And we praise you that you have said grace will prevail. Father, we pray for the Velasquez's and the Ephthemus and their connections to Memphis. And we pray for our country that continues to be convulsed. And Father, we confess to you that we only know such a small portion of those convulsions because even what we know is mediated for us. But Father, nothing is mediated to you. Nothing is ever told you. Nothing is ever a surprise to you. You are God. And you have said that grace will prevail. And so Father, we come to wait before you. Some of us are here today wondering if you really are God and if you will show up. Father, you know the paucity of our faith that expresses itself in arrogance, but also in timidity, in pride, but Father, also in a brokenness that words can barely describe. And you know how to deal with each of us. To each of us as a woman and as a man created in your image, you know how to deal with us. So Father, we come before you and we wait. We wait before your word. Because we need, it's necessary for us. And so we ask you, would you meet us and would you do more than we can ask or imagine? We are asking that you would show us Christ and that seeing him, each of us would be transformed. Father, we, prepare, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to come and receive the sacrament. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the operative power in both the preaching of your word and in the sacrament that we need. And so please meet us in that need. We thank you and praise you that you are the one who calls us today, who has drawn us before you. And so now we say, Father, as much as our ears can hear, our eyes can see, We look to you and we listen. Please speak to us. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, cause it to bear fruit in our lives, we pray. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're continuing uh, with this gospel study of uh, John. And we're in chapter 16. You guys, we have been in this upper room for a long time. (laughs) We ended last spring in the upper room, and we are still not outside of the upper room. I want you to see in this sermon, I want you to see the context of this passage. I want you to see the content of this passage, and then I want you to see how it applies to our lives. It's just those three simple things that I want to show you. We are with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is the one who has spoken these words. And we're most likely in the upper room. I say most likely in the upper room because at the end of chapter 14, those of you who remember, it says that Jesus says, rise, let us come out of this place. 
But then at the, cha- and at the beginning of chapter 18, it actually says that after Jesus has said these things, they left and went across the valley and went into the garden. So there's real question about where they are, but it's most likely that they're in the upper room. And if they are there, the one thing that is not unlikely is that they all have clean feet. That's a good thing, right? Because we are still in the context of Jesus having washed the disciples' feet of Jesus having to say to them, look, I'm leaving you, and before I leave you, I'm going to love you to the end, and I'm going to wash your feet because I want you to obey a new commandment that I'm giving you. Love one another just as I have loved you. So you ought to love one another. Jesus has told them that hatred is headed their way. And so, the context of this passage is twofold. Verses 5 and 6 tells us that their hearts are filled with grief. They are filled with grief. Jesus says, I told you that I was going away, but none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, those of you who are sharp and who are paying attention to the Gospel of John go, wait a minute, didn't Peter ask him where he was going before Peter said, I'll go to hell and back with you, Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. And isn't Thomas the one who said in chapter 14 to Jesus, hey, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? How does Jesus say, none of you asks me where I'm going? The only commentator that I felt like shed any light on that for me this week was a guy named Carson. And and what he said was this. He said it was kind of like the child who hears that their parent can't come and be with them at their special event that night. And the child goes, where are you going? And it's not like the child cares where they're going, right? The the child wants to know, why aren't you going to be with me? Right? And Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're, you're consumed with grief. You're not thinking about where I'm going. And in that sense, it made sense to me. In verse 6, it says that sorrow or grief had filled their hearts. The context of this statement is a context of grief. We have one child. Those of you who know our children can probably guess who this child is. But if that child walks into a room, that child senses the environment. That child knows what it feels like to come into a room, and that child can identify the way the room feels, the weight of it. And Jesus recognizes that too, that this room is filled with grief. There's a theologian by the name of Nicholas Walterstorff, who in 1987 lost his son in a mountain climbing accident, and he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And in that, he defined grief like this. Grief is that when you... Grief is when you have an attachment with an object that either dies or is destroyed or you no longer have access to it. That's grief. He goes on to say that grief is wanting the death and the destruction of that object of your attachment to be undone, but knowing that it can't be. 
Grief, he says, is irrational in that sense. Not that we should not grieve, but it's irrational because it's the contradiction between wanting something and knowing that you cannot have it. That is grief. I want to stop for a minute. And I want to ask you the question, do you believe that Jesus knows your grief? If you do not believe that, you need to stop listening to me right now and bow your head and ask God to convince you that he knows your grief. Because the rest of what I'm going to say is going to sound a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher. Do you all know that illustration? Walk, 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 right? And you're like, what did the teacher just say? God is aware and cares about the condition of your heart. Do you believe this? Psalm 56 tells us that God even holds our tears in a bottle. What an image of his awareness. The second thing that is in context here is verse 7. Jesus is telling them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, even in the midst of your grief, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The context of this passage is an amazing context. It is a complete change of an age and an epoch in the history of redemption. This passage is incredibly powerful because it is on the pinnacle of that change in the history of redemption, when Jesus is going to die on the cross, be buried in the tomb, and three days later rise again from the dead, and 40 days later ascend into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is going to be given to the church. The context of this passage is a complete change in salvation history. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about when they say, when he said to them, you don't even ask me where I'm going. They are filled with grief. When I was much younger, I thought that I was going to spend my life in the camping world. And so I took a course called Wilderness First Responder. And it was a course about medicine. And it was to train us to be able to care for people who are wounded in the wilderness. And one of the first things that we learned is that when somebody has a massive wound on their body, the worst thing you can do is slap a Band-Aid on it. Because the inside of that wound is just kind of still not even closed. It just has a covering over it, and it festers, and it can get infected. But what we were taught to do is to take that wound and to pack it with antibiotics. Jesus is about to pack the disciples' grief 
with truth. Notice he doesn't say you shouldn't grieve. But he is about to pack the disciples' grief with truth and ours as well. That's the context. The content has just two parts. And I want to look at these quickly with you so that you understand what the passage is about. I mainly want to talk about application today. The content of this is found in two parts, verses 8 through 11 and verses 12 through 15. It's the work of the Spirit that Jesus describes here. The first thing that we read in 8 through 11 is that the Spirit is going to come and the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, right? He says, look, the world is going to convict the world, uh, or the Spirit is going to come and convict the world of sin because of its unbelief. It hasn't believed me, right? It's convicting the world of its sin, is what the passage says. Then it says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict the world of its sense of righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict. But there, he says it slightly differently. It's interesting. He says, concerning righteousness in verse 10, because I go to the Father, and then he says, and you will not see me anymore. In other words, that when Jesus is present, the world was convicted of its sense of righteousness. But Jesus is leaving. He's going to the Father. You all are not going to see me. Neither is the world going to see me. But the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of its sense of righteousness. And one commentator said that transition to because you will see me no longer is because most likely the world is going to be convicted of its righteousness because of our presence. What we just read, the reason the world is going to hate us, right? And then he says the world is going to be convicted of its sense of judgment. Its inability to see Jesus for who he rightly is. And he says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Present tense. It's happening, Jesus says, even now. Jesus has said since he dismissed Judas back in chapter 13, he says now it has begun, the glorifying of God. The judge or the prince of this world, the ruler of this world is judged in Christ at the cross because you know the lie that has been sown into the hearts of every human being is the lie that God doesn't love us and that he's not going to give us what we need. That's our lie. And Jesus says that the spirit is going to come and convict the world the same way I did. It's got to have you scratch your head just for a minute. Because did you ever remember Jesus going to the Roman authorities and convicting them of their sin, of their sense of righteousness, or of their judgment? Have you experienced that? Did you remember that in Scripture? No. To whom does Jesus go? Jesus goes to his people and convicts them of their sin, of their sense of righteousness, of their judgment against him. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the world. 
but he also convicts the worldliness in us. Throughout John, the ones who Jesus convicted the most were the religious leaders of their sin, of their sense of righteousness, of their judgment. But the world is also included in this. The Holy Spirit is responsible for convicting people outside of their faith of their sense of sin, of their sense of righteousness, and of their sense of judgment. And listen, that's really good news for us. It is not our responsibility to convict the world. The job of the Holy Spirit is to do that. That's good news. And that continues. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is in verses 12 through 15. The Spirit of truth, as he's described in verse 12, will guide you into all truth. The Spirit of truth will guide them into all truth. This is great stuff. The first thing that he says about this guiding it into all truth is he's going to declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit has already been described in chapter 14 as working in the hearts of believers, reminding them of everything that Jesus has said and done up until this point. But now he's told that he will declare to us the things that are to come. Not just revelation, but the implication of all truth that cascades from the reality of the cross of Christ. Think about it for a minute. This same writer of the Gospel of John is going to write the book of Revelation, declaring to them all truth of that which is to come. But this same writer is also the writer that writes 1 John and declares to them the implications of Christ's death for them. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and God is actually just to forgive us our sins because Christ has paid the price for them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's not just that, that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, guides us into. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, guides us into the testimony of the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being of the same mind, being of the same heart, being of the same action of redemption of the humanity that our triune God loves. This is the content of what Jesus tells them. In the context of their grief, and of this time in salvation history that's about to shift when Jesus ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes to the earth and embodies his people, the church. So what's the application now that we've gotten there? What do I want you to hear from this? The first application is simply this. And I want you to hear this. God knows your grief and your grieving. God 
knows our grief. Not just from this passage, but from so many places in Scripture. Scripture declares, you are known. It's interesting. We are very callous and very reckless with each other's grief. We could read this passage and hear Jesus say, hey, look, this is for your own good that I'm leaving. This is good. And we could turn right away and go, you know something? Your grief is, is, is for your own good, right? We could say that without even stopping and thinking about the accuracy of that. But we have to stop and remember just a minute that Jesus is saying, look, it is for your good that I specifically am leaving the disciples because he knew that there was a change in the epoch of salvation history and that what was going to follow his leaving was the coming of the Holy Spirit. That does not give us the right to look at each other's grief and say, that's for your good, don't worry. Some of the grief that you and I experience and that we are in is not going to be made right until the end of this epic of salvation history, until Jesus comes back. But that doesn't mean we don't pack our grief with truth. The second thing of three that we learn from this is that we live in the age of the Spirit. If we forget this church, our grief will be the wave that overcomes us. Nicholas Walterstorff writes in one place, he says, my grief is no longer the island but has become the sea. What an amazing image. The sensation of that is true. The reality is that we are not overcome by our grief, but we live in the age of the Spirit. About two years ago, I got so discouraged with the news that I stopped listening to news on the radio at all. I just stopped. Now, I still read some news. I try to keep up. Mainly, I depend on you all who tell me, did you hear this? And I'm like, no, and then I race back and try to figure it out. What I do instead is I listen to books. And it has been one of those seasons where I needed to return to the Lord of the Rings. Those of you all who love Lord of the Rings know the different divisions in the chapters. And you know what it's like when you come away from the two towers into the book, The Return of the King. And you know the anticipation that wells up in you as you lean into the words and you go, yes, this is what I need. And I want to tell you that this is the age of the Spirit and the only thing that's left is what Nathan Barzi told us. The only thing that's left is Jesus' return. That's what we're looking forward to. One of my friends told me of my grief and my sorrow of late, you have to look through it to the joy that it will follow. Because if you don't, you will be overwhelmed 
by the grief. We live in the age of the Spirit. The Spirit is still convicting the world. The Spirit is still convicting the worldliness in us. And look, that's great hope. That is great hope from this passage. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness to us that leads us to repentance. I need a little bit more of God's kindness to me. And the last thing I want you to know is that the spirit of truth still guides us. Right here, verse 12, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, he tells the disciples. Listen, Jesus is speaking to a particular group of guys at a particular point in in the history of salvation. But the rest of Scripture tells us that the spirit of truth guides us. This is shepherding language. When I say this is shepherding language, where does your mind go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? He leads me beside still waters. I remember the first time I studied that passage and the commentator wrote, the reason sheep need to be led beside still waters is because they're scared of the movement of running swift water and they need a pool to drink from. And that commentator said, It is just like the Lord to lead his people to places where they can lie down and weep and be refreshed in his presence. This is the part of the sermon that I've wanted to tell you all week. I want to tell you all that the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit, even now, fills us with hope. The Holy Spirit prays on our behalf with groans. He teaches us how to pray and what to pray for. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit enables us to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit pours out God's love in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is our down payment of the certainty of our union with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the operative power in the sacraments of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is making all of Christ's enemies his footstool. The Holy Spirit enables you and me to obey. We are led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. I could go on and on and on. I literally only looked up one-fourth of the verses about what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. I could go on and on. The Holy Spirit fills us with hope. Listen to that when I give the benediction. What is the application of the gift of the Holy Spirit in the context of grief and the age of the Spirit? It's that our grieving is understood differently. I don't know how many of you have 
attached to this book every moment wholly. There are two volumes of it, actually. The first volume is really a neat volume. There are things like, you know, how to say a prayer over doing dishes, you know, and stuff like that. But there are also things in there about how to say prayers over gatherings together and, and how to say prayers at, you know, at a new car and, and things like this. The second book is a volume that has to do with death and grieving and lament. And you might say, don't get that book near me. No, trust me, you need this book. Listen to one little portion of one prayer that the author writes. I am learning, O Lord, how sorrow and hope were never enemies, but co-laborers. For it is sometimes the work of our grief to hew out deep cisterns where the sustaining waters of eternal hope might afterward pool. Church. Grief, this side of Jesus' return, is inevitable. But my prayer for you is that grief will hew out the cisterns where the eternal waters of God's hope will pool so that by those waters, you can rest and weep and be restored.